Today's scripture is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. I'll give you a minute to grab your Bibles. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's staff, which budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atoning cover. But about these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the, uh, while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food, drink, and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. May God bless the reading of his word. We have Pastor Jeff Wang today preaching on our series, Hebrews Part 2, A Better Redemption. The sermon title for today is A Better Redemption Part 1. Over to you, Pastor Jeff. Good morning, Crossbridge. As you can see this morning, I'm clearly not in the sanctuary, and I'm not in our church's recording room either. I am recording this from my home. If you look behind me, you can clearly see the different parts of my home. There's, there's the kitchen. Uh, there's this dining table where we eat. There's a, a desk that Yin and I share and, and take turns to get some work done, whether it be for church, or for the hospital, uh, there's a couch, uh, there's even a, a door that separates the main living space from uh, the most holy place in our, in our home, the bedroom. But um, the reason why I am starting this sermon with a tour of my home is not because I'm trying to recreate a, an episode of MPV's Crips, you know, because you know, honestly, you've there's not much to see here. You've kind of already seen it all. Uh, it would probably be the most boring and lamest and shortest episode of MTV Cribs there ever was. But uh, there is a point to kind of talking about all this furniture. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get situated, put this uh, camera set up, and we can dive into our passage together. So our passage this morning also begins with a tour of sorts, looking at different types of furniture. The author of Hebrews talks about this earthly tent, the tabernacle. It was a, a portable sanctuary for the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was the place where God would dwell among them. It was a, it was a key part of their worship. These first few verses are, are giving us a glimpse into the furniture of this earthly sanctuary. 
because he has a point in, in, that he wants to make in terms of bringing to light and, and showing all this attention on this furniture. Now, I know perhaps it's been a while for some of us, but when we visit someone's home, like how you're maybe visiting mine virtually this morning, we can learn a lot about them, right? From the furniture that they have to the colors used, the, the color palettes that they select, to how things are arranged, to even what takes up most of the space. You know, for example, I'm currently borrowing Titus's playpen so that I can set up this camera. And I guess you could also say that Titus is currently borrowing our living room so that he can have a safe space to play. All of these different things that make up our home, your home and my home, tell us, might tell us what is important, what is valued, how things operate or function. And so all this furniture, the arrangement, and everything else might tell you something about me in the same way that if I were to visit your home, it might tell me something about you and your family. Likewise, our, our passage this morning is also drawing lessons for us from furniture, but not uh, archaeological uh, or architectural lessons, but lessons about God or about salvation, about the covenant. We're in chapter 9. If, if you remember a few weeks ago, Chris preached on chapter 8 about a better covenant. Uh, that is a, a covenant with Jesus. It's cut above. That's how, uh, this is how the chapter ended how our chapter picks up this morning. So chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, this morning I want us to focus in on that latter half of this verse. That, that is to say that with Jesus, this first covenant is obsolete. It is disappearing, in the words of the author. And the author of Hebrews is, is taking space in chapter 9 to address how this is the case. You know, in what way was the first covenant, the old covenant, obsolete? How was it insufficient? And he does this primarily in two ways, which he conveniently lays out for us in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. He looks at this earthly place of holiness, the, the tabernacle specifically, uh, the tent, and, and how it was set up. The arrangement, the layout for this place of worship, this portable sanctuary under the Old Covenant. And secondly, he moves on to look at the regulations for worship, the ceremonial practices, the rituals associated with those who carried it out, the priests and the high priests, which you know, at this point in our time in Hebrews, we should already start to kind of know in the back of our minds these contrast with the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ that we've been kind of talking about here and there in these different chapters in Hebrews. And so if you're worshiping with us from home, I encourage you to take out your Bibles, your phones, follow along with me as we hear from God's word this morning. You can uh, turn or scroll with me to verses 2 to 5. And we're going to start there as we read about a different set of furniture. Furniture of the tabernacle. It says, therefore, a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. <coughs> Behind the second curtain was a second section, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense 
and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak. So these first few verses that we're getting at in uh, this passage this morning, it helps us to picture both what was inside the tabernacle and also how it was all laid out. But the lesson that we're going to draw from this is not an architectural one, but a theological one. That is to say that the arrangement for worship under the Old Covenant was limiting in some way. In this picture that I'm going to bring up for you guys, you can kind of see what the tabernacle would have looked like from the outside. You can imagine the thousands of Israelites in their different tribes being encamped around the tabernacle. This was going to be where God would dwell among his people as they journeyed through the wilderness. It was a portable sanctuary, so something that they could take down and, and then move and journey and then put back up when they settled. You can see the court of the tabernacle, that open space within the four walls, that square structure that you see uh, kind of in the center is the altar of burnt offering, where bulls and other animals would be slain as sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. But our, our author this morning is focusing specifically on that tent in the picture that you can see right there. That's what he's referring to. When he begins verse 2 saying that a tent was prepared. Now if we kind of zoom in and we enter into this tent, we can see what the passage is talking about visually. There's the lampstand. Right? It was made of gold. It had seven lamps or branches, three on each side and one in the middle as a central stem. These, these lamps would be kept lit day and night. There was also the table and the bread of the presence, a table with loaves of bread on it. And so there were 12 loaves of bread arranged in two rows of six. And this bread was, was going to be replaced by freshly baked loaves each Sabbath day, so once a week. There was also the altar of incense. Like the lampstand, it was also made of gold. Now the, the scripture, the passage tells us that we know that there are two sections to this tent. There's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place, or you know, we call it the holy of holy sometimes. Our passage makes it seem like the altar of incense was in the most holy place, but it's actually not. And so what we have here is what one commentator calls a, a theological idea instead of an archaeological error. And what's going on here is that the altar of incense played a huge role in the Day of Atonement. So one day out of the year, where the high priest would enter into this Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And so if we're going to zoom out a little bit, we have three things laid out in, in a straight line. Three important things. Uh, the brazen altar of sacrifice in the court. The altar of incense in the holy place. And the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy holy place. Three things in three different areas or divisions of the tabernacle. Maybe the way that it's laid out in a straight line shows how important and connected 
all of it is to the act of atonement, to the act of propitiation, to the act of atoning for the sins of the people. On the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the most holy place with the, the blood of the spotless animal, slain on the altar of sacrifice, and also the incense that he would he would light and, and uh, from the altar. That incense would then be sprinkled on the live coals, and it would generate a scent which would be symbolic of the prayers of the people rising up to God. So, looking at the things in the in the holy place, these three things: the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. Now, all of these things are located here in the holy place, and all played a role in the practices of the Levitical. Now, uh, the passage then for us uh, continues on, moves on to this second section in, in this earthly tent, the most holy place. As, as we said early, or earlier, the holy of holies. And there's a, there's a curtain, a veil that separates these two sections. It's uh, In the Old Testament, it's described as being made of fine twine linen woven with blue and purple and scarlet, highly decorated, adorned with the figures of the cherubim. Magnificent curtain. Now, as magnificent a piece uh, uh, that it was, it wasn't merely just decorative. We have to take a step back and realize, what's the whole purpose? Why is it there? It's to set up a barrier. It is there to separate, to keep people out, away from God. Because what lay behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. This box or chest was more than just a box or chest. On top of it was a slab of pure gold that was to be the mercy seat, the throne of grace, the glory of God's holy presence. And so we've been zooming in kind of to each section of the tent, but if now if we're going to zoom out again, what do we see? We see, what is the picture that is painted for us? We see this, this presence of God in the Holy of Holies, which is then separated by a curtain from the holy place, which is then separated by another curtain from the court of the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle itself has four walls in which the Israelites dwell on the other side. So, needless to say, the arrangement for worship, the, the structure and layout of this portable sanctuary of this place of worship under the Old Covenant was limited. Limited in the sense of access to God. There are curtains and sections, barriers upon barriers to get to God, both physically and spiritually. Can we imagine what that must have been like? There's a saying that Christians often say, right, about Christianity, about our faith, that it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Because that relationship is something that we want to emphasize. And it's true. Maybe sometimes we, we take that for granted on this side of redemptive history because of all the access to God that we have because of Jesus. But we can also maybe understand to some extent how hard it might have been. Even right now, you are not in my living room with me. I'm not in your living room with you. I'm sitting on my couch. Maybe you're sitting on your couch. Technology has allowed us to communicate 
but it hasn't been able to replace the experience of being in a room together as you and I, as we all together worship God together or fellowship together. Maybe if we had VR or AR, it would make it a little bit better, but you know, for us, admittedly, perhaps it's been, it's been so long that we've forgotten even what that felt like. The point is that even now there are barriers set up. I'm talking to a camera. You're looking at me, but you're looking really at a screen that has me. And, and that makes the relationship hard, doesn't it? It's hard for us to get to know one another. How much more so with God? But we recognize that it had to be this way under the old covenant. Because you had the problem of God's holiness and humankind's sinfulness. As much as God loved his people, the Israelites would not have been able to approach God in their current state. They weren't worthy. They were sinful. They were broken. That was something that they understood. And so in Exodus, God had just given Israel his law, which included the Ten Commandments that many of us know. This is how they are to live as God's holy people. And right after it, it says in Exodus 20, 18 to 19, now, when all the people saw the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And so the people stood far off, while only Moses drew near to where God was. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has this vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And all around the words uh, are being proclaimed, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what's Isaiah's response? It wasn't, you know, look at me now, or started from the bottom, now we hear. Now it was, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Seeing God made him existentially aware of his own sinfulness, of how far he fell short of God's glory. And so the entire layout of the tent was meant to keep us separate. How can a sinful people stand in the presence of a holy God? It's an idea that was obviously lost on the Nazis in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. A classic scene where Indiana Jones has been captured and the Nazis have uh, taken hold of, discovered the, the Ark of the Covenant. And so they, they pry it open, they open it up, and their faces melt the sheer glory and holiness of the presence of God. And Indiana Jones, all tied up, tells the person next to him, shut your eyes. Don't look at it no matter what happens. So we see what lessons the furniture of this tent in the tabernacle teaches us about the Old Covenant. But it wasn't just the tent itself, but also the regulations for worship under the Old Covenant that were limited. It was what was going on in this tent, too. 
And so the, the passages, uh, the passage continues on in verses 6 to 7. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What stands out about both the priest and high priest is that it's something that they do continually. This doesn't end for them. For the Levitical priest, it was day after day after day going into the holy place to make sure that the lamps kept burning, to burn the incense on the altar, every morning and evening. And once a week, to go in and replace the loaves of bread on the table. This is something that they had to continually do. For the high priest, it was annually entering the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. But that also came with certain stipulations, right? That he could only enter once a year. And the only way for him to enter was by taking Blood was the entrance fee. It was the ticket in. And we're going to see this idea more fully developed in the next half of this chapter when we pivot to Jesus, what he brings. And we're going to tackle this in two weeks. But for now, the point is that the, the high priest had to offer the blood of sacrifice, the sacrifice of these animals for both himself and for the people. That's to say that for the high priest himself, even though he's in his position, he had no inherent right of entry on the basis of his own holiness, of how righteous he was. He couldn't get in simply by saying, I'm the high priest. He, along with everyone else, were still sinners in need of atonement. We also learn from something else, from what, uh, we learned something else from what took place. That the, the imp imperfection that was characterizing God's people, you and I, them, also extended beyond the high priest and the people to the animal which was sacrificed, an animal that uh, itself was also imperfect and sinful and, and broken and, and could never uh, be a proper, perfect substitute for men and women, you and I, whom God created in his own image. So year after year, knew a different animal had to be sacrificed and only carry them over to the next year. This whole process wasn't definitive. It was temporary. It wasn't final. It said it was inadequate. It was insufficient. These two verses detailing the responsibilities of the priests demonstrate a similar lesson from the verses about the furniture of the tabernacle. Under the first covenant, no sacrifice was going to be sufficient enough to bring about complete redemption. This is why in Jesus, the second part of this Shibu sermon series is a better redemption. There's nothing going to be good enough to save the people from their own sins and bring them back to God. And, and look, as we've been working our way through this passage, notice how our author is constantly writing about these priests in the present tense. Now, there's a possibility that he's using the present tense to, to bring about literary vividness, to make it more alive for us. 
But it's also quite possible and probable that he's writing at a time where the temple still exists in Jerusalem. Where, you know, Jesus has already come, he's died on the cross, he's raised from the dead, he's ascended to heaven. But there's still these traces of the, the, the priesthood and its practices. Even though the coming of Christ meant the inauguration of the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, which we talked about and tackled in previous weeks, the Jerusalem temple and its practices of trying to find all these different sacrifices still continue to exist and persist. In chapter 9, it is exhorting the readers that the old, co- old covenant has passed away and been superseded. The old Levitical priestly system with its many imperfect sacrifices was replaced, fulfilled by Jesus' priesthood with his own sacrifice, with his body as a single, all-sufficient sacrifice and whose sacrifice brought about that tearing of the veil of that temple. Our passage closes out with a summary of why the first covenant, the old covenant, was insufficient. The arrangement of the tabernacle with its curtains and barriers showed how it was limited. And so did the explanation of the roles of the Levitical priests and high priests. But in these last few verses, the passage says this. According to this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. That's to say that these gifts, these sacrifices that were offered the way that was done under the old covenant, it was provisional. It was temporary. It was a shadow, a copy of the things that were to come, of the reality that was to come in Jesus. These things in and of themselves could never clear the human conscience of guilt. And we all have consciences, right? It acts as an internal moral compass. It reminds us of our answerability for our sins, particularly before God, because someday we're going to take uh, stand uh, before God and, and take account for our sin. Now, there are some instances of people whose consciences have been so deeply marred and perhaps even erased, but I figure for most of us listening at home right now, whether you follow Jesus or not, we have a working conscience, a voice that tells us that we're going to do something wrong or have done something wrong. Maybe it's what keeps us up at night when we're trying to sleep. It's what keeps gnawing at us in our thoughts. We feel guilty. And maybe sometimes we feel guilty because we are guilty. And a guilty conscience leads us to do things to appease that feeling. Pilate washed his hands as he sentenced Jesus to be crucified, saying, I am innocent of this shedding this man's blood. Maybe we ourselves, we try to take a shower to forget it all. We shake our head vigorously to as if to shake all the negativity out. Or, or we think, you know, all this conscience is it's because of external, uh, in my environment or other people, but it's wrong. And so I need to change my way of thinking. Or maybe we adopt this notion of good and bad karma, thinking that 
If we can do more good, it'll outweigh the bad. The problem, though, is that none of these things actually address the actual problem, the internal problem of us, the internal guilt and shame. If the Hebrews passage talks about gifts and sacrifices that deal with things only externally, then we're insufficient. Now, these days, we might be looking inwardly to deal with it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, it may address a feeling of, of guilt, which is good, but may not necessarily address the problem of being guilty. Scripture sometimes talks about guilt like death. Like the feeling of guilt can be very similar to the feeling of having debt. The stress that, that comes with not being able to pay that debt. Maybe it's your student loans, or medical bills, or credit card payments. You get weighed down by it. And so what is going to remove that weight? Yes, we can right, take a shower to forget it all. We can shake our head vigorously to get all that negative energy out. We can look inwardly for a way so that it doesn't consume us, right? Change our mindset. But that's not necessarily bad per se, but look, the moment you log into Sally Mae, those feelings might come rushing back because you still see the numbers and you're still in debt. It doesn't change necessarily much. Hebrews is setting the stage for us this morning that there's only one thing that can cleanse our conscience, remove the guilt, both the actual guilt and the feeling. There's only one thing that can bring us to God. It's not the sacrifices that came with the Old Covenant, not the good works that we try to do. It's not the mantras that we try to recite over and over again to make us feel better. But it is only the blood of Christ which wipes out our debt. It is only the blood of Christ that allows us to sing the lyrics of this hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an Gracious God, we give thanks to you for sending your Son, Jesus, to be the great high priest for us, so that we might have uh, an end of all our sins, so that our conscience might be clear, so that we might be able to stand before you, God, so that we might be able to approach you, God, not on the basis of our own righteousness or holiness, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray.